Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. Space is really huge, but sometimes some pretty stellar collisions can occur. Now, of course, if we're lucky enough to capture one of these stellar collisions, that's great. But otherwise, we have to rely on simulations and models. So how can we make these supercomputer crunch simulations even faster and more powerful? And how can we use these simulations to target our research efforts to hopefully answer some of the fundamental questions about our universe? Now there's plenty of exciting computer games out there, especially if you have a passion for space or maybe a passion for just blowing things up. Whether that be Kerbal Space Simulator where you try to wickedly hold together your own version of NASA and your rockets as they explore the the universe. All the way through to something on a bit more of a grander scale like Universe Simulator. All of these things use physics engines, computerized forms of the laws of physics that we know and love and tries to use them to model and protect and understand the behavior of objects in our universe. Now, whether those objects are rockets hurtling precariously from the surface of Earth to Moon, the Moon in Kerbal, or perhaps somewhat more seriously, trying to model what happens when some galaxies collide. Now, this is a lot of fun for people who play games, myself included, but that isn't exactly what researchers always struggle against, because anything like astrophysics or anything incredibly complex needs to get crunched by supercomputers, needs to get analysed. If you come up with a new theory about how a galaxy or a star has been formed or will meet the end of its life, perhaps colliding with another interstellar object, to figure this all out, you need a lot of powerful mathematics. Unfortunately, we can rely on supercomputers to do this activity, but they can be slow, incredibly slow, and you require lots of computing power to munch and crunch all of that data. Now, there are a lot of different supercomputers out there, and in Australia, we have number 25 on the world's top 500 supercomputer list, GADI. Now, you can have like 80,000 cores of a processor power on any particular one of these supercomputers. But even doing so, modeling something as complex as two stars colliding, well, that can take days. So how do you speed up this process? Because if you wanna run a lot of different models at the same time and compare them, you want a better method. And this all comes down to code. It's a code optimization problem. If you've had any experience with coding, you'll understand that, yes, there are many different ways you can write the same function, the same piece of mathematics, the same piece of logic. Some of them, due to a number of reasons, can be more efficient than others. Those reasons might be just the way that a computer adds two numbers together or does multiplications. Where it stores them, the temporary result as it does a multiplication or a more complex math function how it processes these at once, or maybe it does a whole bunch of parallelized tasks. All of this parallelization or optimization of code is incredibly important if you're gonna run something that takes an incredibly long time. And the bigger and more complex the question you get on a stellar level, well, that takes a lot of difficult computing time. So researchers from Louisiana State University, Indiana University, Kokomo, and Macquarie University here in Australia collaborated together and came up with a new line of code, a new method for modeling stellar collisions. 
It's called Octotiger, and they published their results in the paper, the monthly notices of the Royal Astronomical Society. Now, lead author on this paper was Dominic Marcello Sagiv Schieber, working with a large team of collaborators, including Marco Frank Clayton, Moti Dehi, and Kaiser. Now, what they outlined here is a new style or a new way of coding, a new library of code, specifically designed to efficiently model the colliding nature of two stars. Now, when it comes to parallel computing, you can think about it as dividing a task amongst lots of different people. The more people you have sharing that task, the coordination between them becomes more and more important. So in parallel computing, you can use a number of different strategies to share and coordinate information between these nodes or these points of processing. Maybe their cores, maybe their local nodes in terms of a, a parallelized task or a virtualized node. Now, you could use different mechanisms, and there's one that's been quite commonly known, known as MPI, which is the message passing interface. And this is the original probably parallelized architecture and framework that enabled programming languages to write and send information out to individual cores. This is really important, obviously, for supercomputers. Now, these researchers at Louisiana State University have been working on high-performance Parallel X, which is a runtime system for running on supercomputers and helps share out this all of these tasks using an asynchronous communication between all these points. So rather than having everybody line up and group together and listen to a message as it comes in, share out the tasks and wait for the next pulse or message to come through, with asynchronous communication between the nodes, you can say, well, I'm working on this task. And when you're finished it, you can go and get another one. Now, this kind of asynchronous or not relying on a clock pulse means you can have really fine resolution and you're sharing out the tasks. That's what Louisiana State University researchers have been really pushing on for a while. And this OctoTiger engine, well, that is one specific application of this overall method of programming in parallel ways. Now, what they designed and optimized OctoTiger to do is to simulate the merger of well-resolved stars. These are stars that can be defined as baryotropic structures. This is a term often used when it comes to modeling, specifically fluid modeling, of assuming something has a uniform structure, a consistent temperature profile. And this sort of works for white dwarfs or other main sequence stars. That's because you can't obviously model the full complexity of it because that's a bit too intense. And if you're focused on the collision between two star objects, you probably don't care about the exact thermodynamic properties of the star. You're more interested in the way all of that energy and heat flows, hence this kind of model. And they also use a gravity solver that conserves angular momentum. It does it down to the level of precision of whatever computing power is crunching it, which they call machine precision. Now, because they use this parallelized asynchronous task-based method of dividing up all these calculations, it scales really well because lots of parts of this fluid-like simulation of the collision of two stars, you can have one section modeling or analyzing one particular particle and it can talk to the neighbors around it. And this means they can all dial back in, report back in asynchronously and overall build up that big picture a lot faster than you would with normal methods. They compare it to lots of other grid-based codes like Flash or other analytical solutions for solving this physics problem. And when they do that, they could find incredibly they were producing these 
simulations of actually quite complex things the, the collisions of two white dwarfs that were orbiting each other until they collide splitting off and throwing off stellar matter all over the place they can see that with far greater precision and they get a lot of interesting details out of it you can see things that they couldn't see before like the way that bits of each star starts to get stripped away before that main collision happens this is the benefit of detailed and precise modeling. You get to see things before that were hidden in the error of the simulation that you were creating. Imagine it like a pixelized image. If you take an image in a very low resolution, you can't really make out the detail. You might get the broad strokes, but you're missing key nuance. With precise models, not only can they be faster, but they can also be more precise. And then you get a lot more detail, allowing you to see things you didn't see before. This is really important for modeling, especially with something like astrophysics, because we're trying to understand and test those models against observed data. And sometimes the observed data we have isn't as clear cut or neat like we would see in a model or a simulation. So by actually having that real data or in a more precise view in our simulations, it's easier to match these two things up together. Now, this is a pretty fun example, colliding two stars together and modeling what happens to the fluid, heat and mass transferred between these two objects. But it goes to show the work that you need to do to be an astrophysicist, because if you want to study the collisions of stars, well, you either need a fast and light spaceship, which I'm sure most of them would like, but is unfortunately not available, or some way to actually simulate and study that process on your desk, or a lot of whiteboard space. And I know which one I prefer, definitely firing up that supercomputer. So this new method, OctoTiger, outlined in the paper, Monthly Notices of Royal Astronomical Society, with lead authors, Marcelo and Shaw shows just how you can develop a new library or a new tool to make that simulation more accurate and faster, enabling you to test and explore more concepts. Astrophysicists love supercomputers, and they like asking supercomputers to do weird things like smash black holes together and count how many times that might happen. Well, that's exactly what some researchers have done, but the reason why they've been doing this is actually to try and look at the universe's expansion, one of the large open topics in our understanding of space. Now, you may have heard of this as sort of Hubble's expansion or Hubble's law, one of the big things that Hubble made his name on. Of course, this was building on derivations from the theory of general relativity by Alexander Friedman. And these equations, these Friedman equations, are show that the universe might expand and gave out what expansion speeds there might be. Now, Hubble was the one who actually went out there and got a lot of data and sort of co coordinated this and showed that they are expanding and the further things are away, you can see their different rate of expansion. In other words, the farther they are, the faster they're moving away from Earth. 
and picking up the velocity of the galaxies by studying redshift, the shift of light towards the different ends of the spectrum. We use these things to understand and look back in time through space. Now, the question is, if the galaxies are moving away from us, spreading further and further apart, what's driving that? Why is that happening? And will that continue at the same pace? These are serious questions which we try to understand by studying things like dark matter and dark energy. So a lot of astrophysics is all based around solving some of these pretty fundamental questions. Why are all the galaxies running away from us? Are they going to keep running away from us? And what is making them flee at such a high rate? Now, researchers from the University College London, along with a number of other collaborating universities like the Stockholm University, University of Amsterdam, published a paper in the journal Physics Review of Letters, with lead authors being Feeney and Paris, along with contributing authors Nisanke and Mortlock. Now, what they did was study the collision of black holes and neutron stars. And there's a reason for this, because these objects are pretty big and contain a lot of energy. Now, when you get these objects colliding, a black hole, which size may be more or less great or small than a lot of other stellar objects, but they contain a lot of built up energy. So when a neutron star meets it, another bundle of high potential energy, well, the resulting collision generates pretty cataclysmic event it causes ripples in space-time, unleashes huge amounts of light. Now, this is important because both of these things are significant. Now, the huge amount of light we can pick up with visible light telescopes, fantastic. That's great, but you've got to know where to look. But that's not the only data they create. Because black holes do weird things with gravity and the fabric of space-time itself, when they collide with something else, well, you end up with these massive ripples we see these as gravitational waves. Now, there are now some observatories on Earth that can study and analyze these gravitational waves. Observatories like LIGO and Virgo. Now, the thing is, more and more instruments are coming online. And whilst researchers have not yet been able to catch a glimpse of the light and the huge amounts of light emitted from this cataclysmic collision between a neutron star, one of the densest objects in the universe, and a black hole, well, we haven't seen the light from it yet, but new instruments and new telescopes are coming online quite frequently. And if you look out over the next well, 10 years or so, there will be a couple more tools in our arsenal that shouldn't enable us to detect them. There's some new detectors being built in India and Japan that will mean that the available measuring capacity of Earth to detect these cataclysmic collisions somewhere in the universe greatly increases. So researchers like Dr. Stephen Feeney look at this pipeline of new equipment coming online and the already powerful detectors we have right now and wanted to know just how many possible events could be out there to detect. How many of these strange cataclysmic collisions could occur? And that requires some pretty serious... Now, in this, what they did was simulate around 25,000 different scenarios of black holes and neutron stars colliding. And the point of this, of smashing these two objects together over and over and over again, was to see how many would likely be even able to be detected 
by instruments sitting here on Earth? And when would we have sufficient measuring capacity on Earth to detect them? And what they found is that by their forecast, by 2030, there should be enough of these high-powered telescopes and other gravitational wave detecting devices that they could have seen around 3,000 such collisions. That's a lot. And for around 100 of them, it's possible that you could have detected visible light accompanying those massive explosions detected by gravitational wave observation. Now, if you think about it, that's really significant. That's a lot of sample points. Considering we've never actually detected visible light here before, with 3,000 explosions as an opportunity, well, you probably have a good shot of getting some good data. And that's going to be really important because our two current best ways of estimating the rate of expansion of the universe that we have are measuring the brightness and the speed of pulsating and exploding stars so either pulsars or other supernova and we try to measure these brightness and we can then look for the fluctuations in the radiation for the early universe that's the other way of trying to assess the rate of expansion of the universe Problem is, if you look at these two things and you build formulas and models based around them, you get really different answers. I come back to before what I said of our understanding missing things like dark matter and dark energy. So if you have another type of data, a third type of measurement, at least you get a better idea. And that's where looking at the explosion and ripples that happen when large objects, large gravitationally speaking, objects like black holes and neutron stars collide. And this is why it's so important. If there's going to be around 3,000 of these such collisions that could be detected, we are going to have the tools that we need to start solving these problems. Now, of course, there's plenty of opportunity for these models to be just that, exercises on a piece of paper. Lots of things in the real world you know, may not go as smoothly as they're modeled inside a computer. You know, for example, some of these collisions won't produce any explosions that could be detected. You know, the black hole could just swallow the star without any sort of disruption. Nevertheless, the having a model that has some power and ability to tell you what could be out there justifies searching for it and gives researchers something to look forward to in the data. After all, the answer to the elusive question from the fundamental ones about why the universe is expanding, how that is being driven, and how fast, or is it going to go on forever? Answering all these fundamental questions can be possible using the tools that are coming online. So we don't have the answer today, and we probably won't have the answer by 2030, but we will certainly have the tools at our disposal to start getting more data and better measuring and understanding what this may be. There's some great research on modeling collisions of neutron stars and black holes and what they can tell us about the expansion rate of the universe, published in the Physics Review of Letters. And lead author was Feeney, along with contributing authors Pires, Nisanke, and Mordlock. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, Lagrange Point. From supercomputers colliding neutron stars and black holes over and over again, to the ways in which we can study and improve our computational models to better understand astrophysics. Our ending theme was composed by Audionatics. Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.